I titled the study tonight, Responding to the Slanders of an Unbeliever. This is a clear and a needed, and boy is it a powerful song. It was written as a song. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes and then we'll look at it together. Father God, as we now come to your word, this is the word that you have for us tonight, O oh Lord, and we need it. We need it. Lord, we are, we are hungry and we pray that, that you would shine the light of your word deep into our hearts. O oh God, your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. So teach us tonight, change us for your glory. Amen. If I were to ask you to begin, what would you say slander is? How would you define the idea of slander? We could think of it as the spreading of false information about another person with the intent to harm them. Maybe a simple way to define slander would be the murder of someone's character. The murder of someone's character. And I want to illustrate it. In 1857, Charles Spurgeon was the object of great slander. He was the object of slander because of his ministry, his preaching, his unswerving commitment to the authority of Scripture and to holy living and course, he was a man who was not afraid to expose error. He was not afraid to expose evildoers. On one occasion, it was so bad, Spurgeon said this, down on my knees have I often fallen with the hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me. In the agony of my grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. It can be of little use and little value to try to reason with slanderers. For the more that you stir it, the more it spreads. Spurgeon said, when cries to man would be our weakness, cries to God will be our strength. To whom should children cry but to their father? Does not some good come even out of that vile thing, slander? when it drives us to our knees and it brings us to our God. Can any good come when you are the recipient of slander? And the answer is yes. When it drives you to your knees and it brings you to your Father. Now, we want to talk about that tonight in Psalm 7, but even before we get into the psalm, I want to remind all of us of the great danger and the harm that slander can do to people. Proverbs 10.18 says the one who spreads slander is a fool. In Mark 7 verse 22, we read that slander comes out of the heart of man. Ephesians 4.31, the apostle Paul said, let all slander be put away from you. Colossians 3.8 connects slander with abusive speech in your mouth. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12, Peter says that we ought to have as our goal 
this amazing verse. I want to read it for you. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Here's our goal. To keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. But when you are on the receiving end, that's a whole different ballgame. It hurts. It's painful. You've been there. You know what it's like to be on the receiving end of slander. How do you respond? Psalm 7 is a time when David was on the receiving end of slander. Look at the title. It is a shigion of David. Now, that's a fun word. It's fun in English. It's funner in Hebrew because the word means agitation. It's an agitated song. Maybe, maybe in terms of its melody and meter, it might be agitated. I think more than that, it's just an emotional, agitated song. David is an emotional wreck. If you've been the recipient of slander, maybe you can relate and it is a shigion of David, here's the setting, which he sang to the Lord concerning a man named Cush. What's amazing is there's no mention of a guy named Cush anywhere in the life of David in the book of Samuel. So we have no idea who the guy is. Now, there's a couple of ideas. I think he was an unknown to us emissary, messenger from Saul against David. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 7, this is the psalm of the slandered saint. This is the psalm of the slandered saint. If you've ever been the object of scorn, this is where you want to turn. And I might even propose in days ahead when you and I as believers standing up for truth are the object of slander in our culture, we're going to want to come back to this song, maybe even commit it to memory as well. Here's why. Follow with me as I read it. Psalm 7, from the title again. A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or if I have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O oh Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God 
who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and he has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his own righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And then the end of the psalm, it is for the choir director, the beginning of the heading of Psalm 8 says, for the choir director on the Gatith. So what do you do when you're the object of slander? What what is God's prescription for when you are down and out with a fresh slander? Now, you see in your outline, right under my thesis statement, I give you my outline. And I, I organized it there for you so that you can even see the emphasis. You see point one, David's affirmation, and then point four, David's adoration. But the emphasis is in the middle. God deal with me, and then number two, God, deal with them. That is a Hebrew structure that brings emphasis to the middle elements of the psalm. The first and the last are parallel, and the middle is the emphatic part of the psalm. So let's begin with the first heading right there. You see it in your your outline, my affirmation. Notice what David does when he is slandered We have to respond like David. As Christians, we live fully because we know our God personally, right? We live fully because we know our God personally. And that's what David does. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. What a comfort it is to know God as my God and to know Christ as my Savior, and to be able to say that He is my refuge, and that He is my hiding place. Not only my personal God, but God is a protecting God. Oh, I love that word at the beginning of verse 1, refuge. Do you see it there, refuge? It's a Hebrew word speaking of a literal shelter that covers you from a rainstorm. When danger is coming, You need to find refuge from a rainstorm, from a covering over your head. And David says, you know what, God? You are my covering. You're my covering. God is the ever shelter and covering in times of trouble. Boys and girls, aren't you thankful when it rains that you have a home that protects you from the rain that falls? But not only is it a neat picture of a refuge, but hear this. In verse 1, when David says, I have taken refuge in you, the image pictures the insecurity and the helplessness of even the strongest of men. 
It shows I'm helpless and I am insecure and I need God and all that he offers to be my protection. It's like saying, God, I can't do this. I need you. And that is David's affirmation. It's like the great hymn writer Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Can you affirm that today? Your affirmation, Lord, you're, you're my rock. You're my refuge. You're my only shelter. He, he prays in verse 1, save me from all those who pursue me. Deliver me. You need to deliver me because if you don't, verse 2, that enemy is going to tear my soul to pieces like a lion. You can imagine that in your mind's eye. My affirmation. God, you are my God and in you I take refuge. When the slander comes your way, First, affirm that God is your God and that God is your sufficient refuge. Now, in verse 3, David gets right into the heart and soul of the prayer. In verses 3 to 5, you see in your outline, he turns to the next portion. It's letter B in your outline. Oh God, deal with me. Now, this is important because everything in us If we're slandered, says, oh God, bring fire down upon them. But before he gets to that, David says, God, deal with me. Deal with me. Rather than retaliate when you and I are slandered, we need to excavate our inner heart and see, have I done wrong? Am I at fault here? Like David, it's almost like he's saying, search me, O God, try me. Examine my heart. Do the x-ray on my inner man. Instead of lashing out at the enemies, we need to look in and see if we are at fault. Look at verse 3 and 4. Look at how David does it here. Oh, Lord, my God, notice the if. Three times. If I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or if I have plundered him who without cause was my adversary. God, if I'm at fault, God, if I have sinned, look at what he says in verse five. Look at the sheer honesty here. Verse five, then If I've done this, Lord, if I'm guilty, let the enemy pursue my soul and totally overtake it. Let the enemy trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory, that is my honor, my reputation. Let let the enemy just overtake me and trample me down to the dust. Talk about a humble way to pray. Lord, if I have sinned, deal with me. Remove my honor, remove my glory. Later on, David is going to pray a wonderful example. In Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. What's David doing? David is saying, God, I want you to deal with me. Is there sin in my life? You know what David is doing? He wants to maintain a clean conscience. He wants to be a man of innocence before God. Now, we need to ask the question, how do you maintain a clean conscience? I mean, how can you and I pray things like this? Lord, if I'm at fault, deal with me. Lay me out. Humble me. Take my glory and put it down. Lord, if I have sinned, then deal with me. But, but Lord, here I am before you with a clean conscience. How do you get there? How do you have and maintain a clean conscience? What are some safeguards? You see in your outline on the right side of the page, number one, it begins with confessing your sin. You know what? what's so hard about that? It requires humility. Lord, I'm at fault. I did it. I'm at fault. What you say in the Bible is right, and I haven't done it. That leads, number two, to asking forgiveness. Lord, I sinned. Will you forgive me? And then you go to others. I sinned. Will you forgive me? Third, then that leads to making restitution, the idea of making it right. What, what can I do? How can I avenge myself? How can I, how can I make things right? Zacchaeus is a great example of that, Luke 19. Fourth, to maintain a clean conscience, don't procrastinate. Well, I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll get to it next week. I'll get to it when I, when I feel bad about it again. No, no, no. Deal with it immediately. And then number five, this is also important. How do you maintain innocence in a clean conscience? You have to instruct your conscience. You have to inform your conscience how? Not by culture, but by the scripture. We have to inform our conscience by, by training how we think. We have to train our conscience by the intake of the word of God. That's how David has a clean conscience. That's how David can say, Lord, if, I have, if I'm at fault, if I've sinned, oh Lord, if I've done this, if I've done that, lay my glory out. Humble me down. You dig deep. You be honest. We must welcome reproof. We need to willingly repent. I love, and I think often of Paul's testimony, 2 Corinthians 1.12. I think of it so often as a pastor because... Paul, as a pastor, said it. He said that our cheerful testimony is that of a clean conscience. I believe a guilty conscience is hell on earth. It is, it is torment on earth. But, but heaven on earth is a clean conscience. Oh, I live before God with an open book. Examine me. Look at my computer. Look at my phone. Look at my life. Look at how I talk. A clean conscience. That's what we all want. That's what Paul said. That's what we want. Notice at the very end of verse 5, the only time it occurs in the psalm, very rarely does it occur one time in a psalm, Selah, think, pause. God, deal with me. Deal with me. 
Then, when slanders come, number one, my affirmation in recognizing that God, you are my God, you are my refuge. And then there's the prayer, oh God, deal with me. The slanders are coming. Yeah, God, deal with me. Deal with me. Now, the third heading, and you see it in your outline, it's kind of the parallel B. It's called B prime in this sort of structure. Oh God, deal with them. There's a right point to pray that at the right time. Deal with them. Instead of retaliating personally, which we want to do, David takes it to God in prayer. And there are him on that, take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, look at verse 9. I want to, I I there's a big section here, but look at verse 9 as we begin. David prays, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. What a good prayer. You and I could pray that today in the culture in which we live. I mean, there is evil everywhere. I mean, from the highest level of our culture to the lowest. I mean, everywhere, public to the private. Every level of society, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, O Lord, but establish the righteous. That's David's prayer. That's what he wants. So so what do you do then? What do you do after you say, God, deal with me. I need to have a clean conscience. I've got to maintain innocence. Then when you say, God, deal with them. First, in verses 6 to 8, notice how David is going to call upon God to rise up, to wake up. It's like a warrior who is commanding another warrior, rise up from sleep. Call to action. Let's go. Verse 6. Look at it. Look at how he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Verse 7. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is within me. What's he doing? God, God, arouse yourself. Wake up. Take action. Judge the enemies. Vindicate the godly. And then in verse 9, there's a theme that's going to come out, and I'm going to mention it to you because when I read it, you're going to see it. It's the theme of the righteousness of God. Now, We don't know the righteousness of God. Our culture doesn't know the righteousness of God. It needs to be preached. It needs to be thundered. It needs to be taught that God is a righteous God. Look at the end of verse 9. For the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. Look at verse 11. God is a righteous judge. Look at what we read later on in verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. What what is the righteousness of God? You see it there in your outline, a definition there. It is the perfect and holy expression of God against all the unholiness of sinners. 
It is the natural expression of His holiness. Because God is pure, because God is holy, because God is good, God is therefore hotly opposed to all that is evil, to all that is sinful, and His opposition to sin must be demonstrated in his treatment of the unholy creatures. It's related to the justice. I think the justice of God is the outworking of his righteousness. Amazingly, our God is the one who tries and examines the inner parts of a man. Do you see there at the end of verse 9? The righteous God tries the heart and the mind. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jeremiah 17.10 picks up on this, I think quoting this, when Jeremiah says, the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds of men. Verse 11 tells us that God is a righteous judge and he is a God who has indignation every day. Look, God doesn't grade on a curve. God is an unswerving judge with perfect righteousness. He has inflexible righteousness. And the end of verse 11 tells us you got to see it in your Bible. I mean, it's what it says right here. God has indignation every day. The Hebrew word, this is not the word for anger. God is angry every day. That's true. And we saw in Psalm 5, he's angry with the wicked. That's true. But the word here for indignation deals with a legal indignation. It's a legal word that you have broken the law of the judge and he is indignant with sinners. He is indignant because sinners have broken his law. Can you imagine how, God, how mad God must be at what's going on today in our world? Furious. He's indignant because his law is being broken. He's a righteous God. And verse 11, he has indignation every day toward the wicked. And then we read in verse 12, some of the most sobering, and we might even say, boys and girls, some of the scariest verses, in my estimation, in all the Bible. Listen to this, verse 12. If a man does not repent, the word repent means like you're going the wrong way and you don't turn around and change directions. If you don't repent, if you don't turn from your sinful ways, God will sharpen his sword because he has bent his bow and he has made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons and God has made his arrows fiery shafts. And there's one image here. It's the image of God as an angry and a powerful warrior. He's ready, he's poised, he's positioned, he has aimed, and he is ready to shoot the flaming arrow at the heart of the unbelieving, unrepentant sinner. And as Spurgeon said, God never misses a mark. 
never misses a mark. On our last family vacation, we went down to Alabama. One of the cowboys there on the farm took us to one of the back parts of uh, where we were staying, and they had a little archery range there, and we had some fun as a family, and we, we were shooting arrows all over the place. Some of our family members have pretty good shots, and some of us don't have very good accuracy. Arrows were everywhere. They were on the target. They would hit the bullseye, and arrows would be on the ground, and arrows would be all over the place. But not so with God. When God shoots the arrow, he doesn't miss the target. He doesn't miss the bullseye. God is righteous as the lawgiver. God is righteous as the punisher. God is righteous as the warrior. And he's righteous as the angry warrior who has been offended by sinners who have brazenly rebelled against him. And many people today might think, you know, I'm good. I'm okay. And they don't understand one of the most important doctrines of the Bible, the righteousness of God. God is righteous. Oh, it's so true. It's so true that sinners must turn or burn. Turn or be shot through to use this image. Oh, you would never want to be the target of someone shooting an arrow at you. You don't want to be the target of God when he has aimed his arrow at the heart of the unbelieving sinner. What's David doing? He's praying, recognizing, God, you're going to deal with them. I know you're going to do it, God. That's the context of this. So we're talking about judgment. We're talking about God's righteousness. But it's in the context of David remembering, God, I know you're going to deal with them. And then he comes back to it, verse 14. Look at it. Behold, speaking of the sinner, he travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. By the way, the verbs are used by James in chapter 1, the progression of sin. Pregnant, it gives birth, brings forth, all of that. James 1, the progression of sin and temptation comes from right here. Verse 15, the sinner digs a pit and he hollows it out. And and then the sinner falls into the hole that he made. And his mischief is going to return upon his own head like a boomerang. He throws it out and it comes back and hits him. His violence is going to come upon his own head. But you know what? God is righteous. He will judge the sinner. But we have to bring out something else regarding the perfect righteousness of God. God is also righteous in his imputation to believing sinners. In Romans chapter 4, we read in verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, that is, makes righteous the ungodly, the faith is credited as righteousness. How in the world can you and I be credited righteous before a holy God? Not by your own doing. You and I are lawbreakers. 
But through faith in Jesus Christ, your faith is credited as righteousness. So when God looks at you, he sees all of the obedient, perfect righteousness of Jesus, which is a divine righteousness. It's enough. It's what you need. It's sufficient. It's complete. It's adequate. It's all that you need and all that you have is given to you by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 11 of our psalm said that God has indignation every day toward the wicked, but you're here today and you're a believer. You're here today and you have repented. The arrow of God in his anger is not aimed at your heart anymore. It was aimed at the Son of God's heart and he took it on the cross. And because of that, God is not angry toward you right now. He has compassion every day toward his own. Proverbs 3.32, God is intimate with the upright. Jeremiah 31.20, God yearns and has compassion for his own covenant people. James 5.11, the Lord is full of compassion. Lamentations 3.23, God's mercies are new every morning. So when you are slandered, when it comes, and Christian, let's prepare. Days are getting darker. Slander is going to come. It's just going to come. You got to prepare for it. You could, you could try to tiptoe, but you can't. It's going to come. If you're following Christ and we're being obedient, the slander is going to come. When it comes, you leave it to God. You let God handle it. You take refuge in God. You examine your own heart. You maintain a clear conscience. And then we remember Jesus bore the righteous wrath of God for me so that I can be counted righteous. I don't need to retaliate. God, you'll deal with them. And he will. In the perfect time, in the perfect way, and by his own perfect power. By the way, if we had time, we'd turn there. We don't. But what do you do when you're falsely treated like this? That kind of fits in this whole setting here. Romans 12, verses 14 to 21. It's the context of don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Heap burning coals upon your enemy's head. That paragraph, Romans 12, 14 to 21, is so helpful and practical. It kind of fits in this whole section here. So when you're slandered, slandered, my affirmation is God. First prayer, God deal with me. Second prayer, God deal with them. And then final affirmation, very quickly as we close, verse 17, here's my adoration. My adoration. Okay, so you say, Jeff, I get it. I get what you're saying here. I'm tracking with you. I understand it. Ha, easier said than done. What do I do in the moment? You tell me to put off retaliation. Well, what do I put on? Verse 17 is what you do. You must give thanks. Sing praise. Verse 17, I will, notice the will, there's a resolve. I will give thanks 
to the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. When you're mistreated, you can praise the Lord. When you're mistreated, you can thank the Lord. He's the Lord of the nations. So you can overcome an angry, avenging heart with an overwhelmed heart in the gospel. I'll say it again. You can overcome a bitter, vengeful kind of a spirit with an overwhelmed heart in the gospel. Thanking, praising, singing, worshiping, loving our God. Christian, it, it's going to happen. Slander is going to come. You've been there, but it's probably going to come much more. Your workplace, from family, maybe from authorities, social media, it, it, it's coming. It's coming our way. What do we do? Let's end by turning to 1 Peter 3. Just very quick in closing. 1 Peter 3. You got to see this. 1 Peter chapter 3. I want you to see Peter's words that I think sum all of this up so well. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter's writing to suffering believers. And Peter's writing to persecuted believers. 1 Peter 3.13. Who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now look, look at verse 14. Don't fear their intimidation. Christian, hear that. People are going to try to intimidate you. Don't fear it. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Verse 15. But you need to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give the, the account for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and with reverence. Now 16, look at this. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That's what you and I need to do. We hope in the Lord. We seek to live godly lives. We, we're not intimidated by the ungodly. We sanctify Jesus as Lord in our hearts. And we have a good conscience. May the Lord help us to do that for his glory. Amen. Amen. Father, we pray that you would help us. Lord, not, not if, but when, when the slander comes our way. It already is, it already has, and no doubt it certainly will be in the dark days ahead. But Lord, we're not intimidated, we're not frightened, we're not fearful, we're not going to run away. God, we're going to stand strong by your grace and with your help in the context of the church with the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to... Maintain a clean conscience. And we know, O oh God, that you will deal with the wicked. O oh God, you will. You will. Keep us mindful of that. Keep us sobered by that. 
and keep us thankful for the blessed work of our Savior on the cross in our place. In Jesus' name we pray.